you know, if you look around the room and you go, you should notice, hey, there's nobody of color here. There's no women here. There's no whatever. Notice that stuff. Notice it. Don't take it for granted. Don't think it just ended up that way. It's hardly ever an accident. And notice it. Noticing it helps because noticing it, I mean, action is the next thing. So hopefully there'll be action. But the first thing you have to do is notice. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller. In this episode, Jesse and Brian talk about the civil unrest sparked by the killing of George Floyd, Brian's personal experience in the entertainment industry, and unpack how you can use what you have to make a difference. So on May 25th, so on May 25th, George Floyd died. Mm-hmm. Well, no, was killed. Yeah. George yeah. Floyd was killed yeah. on May 25th. So it's been about a week and a half mm-hmm. since then. So just to give context for the audience, that is the time frame and state, mental state that we're recording this in, right? So the city of Seattle, I think there's been um, protests every night, at least for the last five or six days, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the context. That's where we're at right now, right? And so we want to have an episode where we at least talk about not only the situation, but also stories in the midst of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so... One of the things, at least that's been happening here at our, biz- at our business and what we do, is we have a lot of people that want to do something, right? And I think for most people, they want to do something, but they really don't know what to do. Right. Right. And this morning, as I was thinking about this episode, I kind of kept coming back to Gordon Parks. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for people that don't know, Gordon Parks was the first African-American uh, photographer for, it was Vogue. Was it Vogue and Time? Uh, yes, I think I'm, was it, he didn't work for life. Did no, he? no, it was life. You're right. It yeah, was life yeah, yeah. and Vogue. Yeah. And he was also a, a director sense. and he also scored films to say prolific is kind of an understatement. He's a novelist. <laughs> he was, <laughs> yeah. His photography is bonkers and he has this story and you can Insane. look it up. I think the video is actually on Vimeo, but if you just type in uh, a choice of weapons, which is actually a book he also wrote and and he tells the story of he was riding with the Panthers and I think they were trying to give him a gun. And he said, you have a Colt 45 on your lap. I have a 35 millimeter camera. This is my weapon of choice. Mm-hmm. And in essence, like, in fact, I wrote down a quote. He said, he's like, I choose my camera as a weapon against all the things I dislike about America, poverty, racism, and discrimination. Mm-hmm. So for him, he was like, this camera is the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. Right. Um, and talk about leaving a legacy, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and so I've been trying to, I've been thinking about what he said mm-hmm. in light of how do you take action, right? Um, because it's easy to feel like you don't have the skills to do, you know. Right. But the problem is so big and it's been with us for so long. It's kind of like, what can you do about it? And Gordon Parks was like, I could pick up a camera. Right. right. And anyways, it just made me think about our conversation today. Mm-hmm. Um, does that kind of spark anything for you, Brian, or, or resonate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gordon Parks is, if it, you know, I hope people look up his photographs. He's got some great photographs, uh, uh, you know, uh, during segregation um, and showing Jim Crow. And, and there's a picture uh that he has of these three black kids uh looking through a fence like a 
you know, uh, chain link fence of uh, a carnival that they can't go to. And uh, those kids are the age of my, they'd be about the age of my, my mother and my aunt, and my uncle. That, so that's who I see when I see that picture. And I see it literally because they were literally growing up under Jim Crow and that would have been a literal thing they would have seen and experienced. And they have stories like that. But I also see that as uh, a perfect metaphor for what it feels like to be a black person in America, to you feel like you're looking through a fence and everybody's at a carnival that you cannot go to or that's very difficult for you to get into. Um, and so that that is one of the pieces of his that moves me the most and speaks to me. And in a way, what what it does is, I don't know what it does for people who don't have that experience, but for people who do have that experience, what it does, I think, is it says that, uh, I see that the, I see you and I see that this is true. And that's a kind of a healing thing. Hmm. Um, you know, um, I, you'd, I don't know what other people see when they see it. That's what I see when I see that. Um, but I also think the thing that Gordon Parks does so well in his photography is he uh, shows the humanity in the people. He's not just taking pictures of something happening, right? Um, there is, I've noticed this when I take pictures, the mood I'm in, no matter what I'm taking a picture of seems to come through the picture. Mm. I don't, I don't know why. And I know that that's the case. So I know if I'm in a certain mood that the pictures are going to come out a certain way. And what I usually do is I lean into that mood when I'm taking the pictures, I go, I'm feeling kind of down. I'm going to lean into that and I'm going to take pictures and that's going to come through. If I fight it, it doesn't work. So I'm just going to go ahead and lean into it. And I don't know what Gordon Parks method was, but I, I would imagine it was similar or he must have known because they're somehow, even though he's just taking a picture of an event or people or whatever, something else comes through um, um, as if whatever was on his mind, whatever was on, you know, in his heart came through in the photographs and um, it creates a kind of humanity instead of just incidents. You really get a sense of the humanity and that humanity that's the same thing you want to do in stories, right? Is, is show people um, the humanity of, of the characters, the humanity of the, your subject. Um, even sometimes if they're people you don't necessarily want to agree with, sometimes that's the most powerful thing um, to show the ugliness of us too, of human beings. And he, and go, was oh, telling, they, he was telling stories no one else was telling. Right. And we've talked about before that we live in a society where there's only really a select amount of voices and stories being told. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I've tried to explain it to people and they don't really understand it, but it, it's sort of like, um, you know, in my life of pitching to, to studios or, or whatever, um, I think sometimes people can't see what I'm talking about. And what I've tried to explain to my white friends is like, okay, just imagine that everybody you had to pitch to was some version of Oprah Winfrey and Spike Lee and, um, you know, name a, you know, or Jordan Peele, right? And you're, you're a white guy and, and you walk in and they don't like anything I do, right? <laughs> right? You would quickly understand what I'm talking about, right? Because that's essentially what I'm up against. Right. People are like, I don't understand what you're doing. It doesn't work. It's like, well, it doesn't work for you. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. Well, and, and then on the flip side, and I'm not going to name names because yeah. I know that you wouldn't want to. Yeah. But there was one of the most prominent filmmakers on the planet 
mm-hmm. his company read one of your scripts and you had a job with them, but then when they met you, the job disappeared. Yeah. yeah. That's another thing that happened. So even on the flip side, even when they just look at the work, oh, oh yeah. Ryan McDonald. Yeah. And then when they met you face to face, all of a sudden, you know, we really don't think we need a writer for that thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was told by a, a black writer that that would happen when they met me. She goes, oh, they haven't met you. <laughs> I go, I'm going to work on this thing. She's like, they haven't met you. They, that work will dry up when they meet you. And it's exactly what happened. It's not the only time it happened either. Yeah. So what I think is really interesting is for a lot of people that look like me, this might be the first time that they're going, oh, there's a breeze outside. Right. Like, here's like, no, the wind's always been there, man. It's just, you know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. That analogy you were talking about earlier. Um. I know this isn't your job, right? So mm-hmm. we don't have to talk about this, but how would you explain that to someone who has not lived that story? Explain the... Uh, what, what it's the, like in America, hmm. right? Yeah. It is, uh, it's, it's difficult to explain um, in terms people understand if they don't have... In the, you know, it's... it's uh, it reminds me, uh, my, my friend Stuart, who was in World War II, said it was so hard to explain to people what World War II was like. He said, unless you were there, you, you just can't get it. And he said, he said, it's like showing someone a picture of Mars and they go, oh, it looks kind of like Arizona. And he's like, no, it's Mars. And that's the, that's the thing. People, a really good analogy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, yeah, it's, that's what it's like. It's like, oh, well. It's, I'm talking about Mars and you have no framework. You have nothing to, you know, all you can do is listen and, and trust that it's true. That's the only, that's the only thing. And after a while, I think you can get some insight. And after a while, you can learn to see things um, that might be invisible to you now. Well, um, it, it's like this. It's like, it's like hearing about racism and going like, I get it, Brian, man. I've had jobs where I didn't get along with my boss either. And right. Like, no, hold on a second. <laughs> like, we're talking about, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. the Arizona thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, when you can, I mean, there have been more times, you know, I, I, there was a, a comic book company. I won't say who they are, um, but they needed a writer. They desperately needed a writer, apparently. And I had a friend who was a colorist for this company. And he said, uh, we definitely, we need writers. You have to come in and meet this, this editor. So I, I put a bunch of my published stuff in a, in a bag and I, and I went to meet the editor uh, my friend's there and he goes, oh, let me go get him. He goes upstairs to get the editor. And I remember because it was a, it was sort of an open stair staircase. The guy came down, he came down and then he saw me and he stopped in his tracks. And then he backed up a couple of steps and then came down and then said um, to me, oh, I'm sorry. We only work with established professionals. Um, That's how he opened. Yeah. Um, that's, that was our conversation. He didn't ask whether I was an established professional. He made assumptions about who I was by how I looked. Um, I, that was, I can't tell you how angry I was that day, um, that I couldn't even get my stuff looked at. And I know they needed a writer. Um, and the, one of the reasons they needed a writer is they kept hiring amateurs, like artists would hire their friends from high school and all that. So actually it was also a lie. What he told me was a lie. And the reason they needed writers is because those writers couldn't meet deadlines. And, 
and uh, at that point, I had never missed a deadline. Uh, I was very proud of that. Um, uh, and that costs the company money if you don't meet mm-hmm. your deadlines, because if the books show up late to the um, to the retailer, they're returnable. So, oh, interesting. That's yeah. why. That's why that. Yeah. So yeah. So if people are late, that actually costs money. And you understand that, and you're like, no, it's professional, and you don't miss the deadline. Yeah. No, I had never missed a deadline, and uh, so it was it was interesting to to hear that they only worked with established professionals when I knew it was that was a that was a just a bold faced lie. <laughs> so I mean, I've got more of those stories than anybody cares to hear, I'm sure, but um, but I have a lot of them. I have you know thirty years worth of them, so <laughs> it's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I, that's hard to explain to people too. Um, the um, the fatigue, you know, um, and the way you can predict things. Sometimes it's happened so much. You go, I know how this is going to go down. Help me understand that. Well, I was up for a job with a big production company and, um, they were hiring a group of writers and they had hired, they, they, they wanted diversity, they said, um, but they hired seven white guys immediately. They wanted 10 people total. They hired s- seven white guys and went, oh, we don't have any diversity. And then they hired uh, two white women and then they went, oh, oh, we, you know, we, we need a person of color. And so then they had, and this is a big company, uh, import, you know, big deal film production company. And so, by the time it came around to me, um, I didn't even know this was happening until they contacted me, but they had read two of my scripts and, and uh, wanted to talk to me. I, I met with them, um, thought I was perfect for the job. There were certain requirements. Uh, by then I was teaching uh, at Pixar and I had Invisible Ink and I think Ink Spots was out. And um, so they knew me as a, as a teacher and they wanted writers to be able to work together and they wanted writers who could help other writers with their work. And that was like, I can do that. Um, but they kept asking me for samples. They kept saying, well, can we have another sample? Can we have another sample? Now, this is something I knew they hadn't done with the other writers. And they kept asking and kept asking. And I understood this. I, I, I was like, oh, I know what this is. This is now them looking for reasons to say no. Right. I, I've seen it before. I know what this is. They aren't going to uh, they're not going to give me this job. Um, there were some other clues, too. They, they started asking me for ideas like, well, if you got the job, what kind of ideas would you it was like? Well, I'm not going to give you ideas. <laughs> give me a job. And you know what I can do. You know what I mean? You've read my comic books. You've read my screenplays. You know, I have ideas. Why would I just tell them to you? Um, well, and, and also, I think we should preface this, too, by like you have a lot of friends who are very successful screenwriters. And you would go home and be like, is this happening to you? And they'd be like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like you yes. told me that too. We're yeah. like writers that if we talked about people be like, you're kidding. It's like, no, you guys came up at the same time and yeah. you would ask them, you know, and yeah. they'd be like, no, that's never happened. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Seven samples. Like that's not, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and so I bowed out of the, I, you know, oh, so I you, didn't, you took yourself out of that. Yeah, I took myself out of that because I knew I wasn't going to get the job. And I, I also, um, there was a lot of, of, of pain associated with that hope all the time. Like, Ooh, oh, I'm going to get that. this, I'm going to get this gig. I'm going to get this gig. I'm going to get this gig. And then never, you never get it. 
Um, and so um, I did not pursue them. They pursued me. I didn't even know they had looked at my stuff. I didn't, you know. Um, and so I thought I'm taking myself out of this because I can't take the, the, the heartache of hoping I get it and knowing I'm not going to get it. So I, as gracefully, gracefully as, oh, also, by the way, a major director wrote me a, um, uh, a letter of recommendation. So a major director on the verge of a, like, they, his movie had tested very well. It hadn't come out yet, but they assumed it was going to be a hit, and it was a huge, massive hit. Um, you also had the letter of recommendation on top of everything else. On top of everything else. Uh, somebody they had worked with. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I bowed out. And uh, a couple months later, I was wondering who they got. Now, if you think about this, it's a big company, big name. Uh, director runs it. Uh, not Spielberg, but comparable in terms of how big. And um, so big deal. So they had one slot for any person of color. That means any gender, any, right, any, any color, right? One slot. Uh, whereas if you were one of the white guys, there were 10 opportunities. There's one opportunity for me yeah. and I have to fight everybody else to get that scrap of meat, right? So I bowed out and a couple months later, I was wondering who they did give the job to. So I wrote the executive um, who I was dealing with and I said, what, what, who did they end up giving the job to? And she said, oh, we didn't fill the slot. Uh, so they couldn't well, find anybody. They couldn't find anyone. So in the it's whole to, world yeah. to work at this big thing doing yeah. this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they hired nine writers instead of 10 because they couldn't find anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so I was right. I wasn't going to get the job. And I was really angry at that because I actually never had a chance. Right? I never had a chance. Right? If they had hired somebody, I would have been like, well, that sucks. I really wanted that job. Right. That's one thing. But never having a chance is a completely different thing. Because all I've ever wanted was the chance. Right. I, just give me a chance at bat. I'll hit the ball. Just give me a chance. at bat. if you're not going to let me hit the ball, you know, just give me a chance at bat. So, yeah, that was difficult. What do you do with it? You said something a second ago and it reminded me of the, the uh, line or whatever. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Like you, you mentioned a minute ago, you said you bowed out because you couldn't take the, like the hope mm -hmm. piece. Help me understand that. Well, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're, it's one of those things where if you're in the movie business or TV or entertainment in any way, it's full of rejection anyway. Right. <laughs> right. You know, you're an actor or something. It's, it's full of rejection anyway. I think the difference is this, a friend of mine who produced a TV show said, um, when they were casting, he says, you know, people, when they're acting, when they go in for an audition, they see the people auditioning them as almost an adversary, right? Like, like, I hope they like me. I want them to like me. They'll probably say no. And he said, the interesting thing is when you're on the other side of that desk, you desperately want them to be the right person, right? <laughs> because you don't want to do this anymore. It's like, I hope this is the person. So they're actually rooting for you to be the person. So they don't have to go through this process anymore. Yeah. Um, I think it's the opposite when you're a person of color. They are looking for reasons for you not to be the person. And that's the difference in the rejection. Like, and, and, the, and the reasons, and they make up reasons, reasons that don't make sense. You know, 
like, well, that seems weird, you know, or they won't look at your work like that one guy at the comic book company, right? You didn't even, he didn't even ask me who I was or what I had done. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear what that snap judgment was about, right? I mean, what else would it be? Yeah. So, um, so the, it's just so many ups and downs. And when you know um, that you're just not going to be right because more times than not, the people who look like you are never right. Um, there's a, there's a, a studio uh, where my name has been thrown around a lot as a possible screenwriter for them. Um, and I've been told this by people on the inside, but I've never, this has been since 2005. I've never been called in to, to work on anything in that, in that capacity at that studio. Um, I seem to be, um, uh, I seem to be utilized to get a project on its feet or help it get focused. And then it's like, okay, bye now. We're going to hire somebody else to actually do the work. Um, and, uh, you know, that gets hard. In fact, it's I had, 30 years. It's 30 years of this. It's 30 years. So, uh, I, in fact, I, I have a friend at this particular place, and he's always talking me up and saying, hey, this guy should get to, you know, do it. And I, finally, I told him to stop. I'm like, don't. Clearly, it's been since 2005 with this particular company. Stop. Stop put my name out there. I don't want it that, you know, and I also know that if I get, if this is, if it's that hard, if it's that difficult to uh, say, yeah, sure. Give this guy a shot. I know that my work's going to be scrutinized differently. I know that they'll go through it with a fine tooth comb and any little mistake will be magnified in their minds, which actually they've done studies that show that that's true. Um, where they sent a legal memo to um, these law firms, they sent a legal memo um, and they were identical memos, like everything was the same, the name, everything, but they told some of the people who read the memo at these law firms that it was written by, um, uh, these were recent law school grads. And they showed, they told some of the people the guy was black and some of the people the guy was white. Same memo, they didn't even change the names. The, the amount, and, they, and they, they put 22 mistakes in the memo that they knew were there. They found that, with with when they thought the guy was black, they found way more of those typos and mistakes, and there were some factual errors and stuff. They found way more of them with the white guy. They didn't find hardly any. And the the comments were with the black guy is I can't believe this guy went to Columbia. Blah 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 blah. With the white guy, it was like this guy really shows promise. Blah, blah, blah. same document. Yeah. So so something's going on there, some programming, some bias that they don't even, I'm sure they don't know they have. And so I know also when I get into these places that I'm going to be scrutinized differently and they're going to see more mistakes. They're going to be magnified in their minds. And so if it's taken this long for this company to bring me on, it's like, well, then I don't want to deal with the biases. I know they already have, I already know they have them, you know? Um, and I've even told my, my manager, I'm like, if they ever offer it to me, just say no. I don't want it now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't want the headache. I don't need it. You know, I'm, I'm too old to put up with it. And I know my value. Help me understand that. How'd you find that? How did I find your value? Like I've asked you before, I was like, man, your confidence, like how do I get confidence? Like your confidence is 
crazy. Like, it's awesome. You'll be like, no, I know I know that. And I'll be like, Matt, Brian, how do you do that? You know? Like, so you just said, like, and I know my value. Like, how'd you get to that as an artist and just as a person? You know, I'm, I, before I was anybody, you know, I don't even know what, a, what it is I have now. Some, it's not even fame. Whatever it is. Whatever this position I find myself in now. I have been for years the guy people come to when they have story problems, no matter their level in the business, right? <laughs> you know, so uh, like August Wilson would come to me and he had two Pulitzer Prizes, right? People would come to me over and over again and some of the best people in the world would want my advice on this or that. And, um, you know, or I would be talking to somebody um, you know, a professional, like somebody who I thought this person, they must know their stuff. And I'd be talking and then they would ask me if they could take notes. Because before I was a teacher or anything, people were like, can I take notes when you talk? I'm like, what? You know, so, so I saw a difference between um, how people would take in what I said and say, wow, that's something I can use. But when it came time to reciprocate hey how about doing something for me it was like well i don't know you're not quite good enough blah 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 it's like oh well i know that's a lie why do you keep coming to me if i didn't know what i was doing stop coming to me and in order to um for my own mental health um i had to own what i knew because it can make you doubt yourself mm -hmm. but when I, I looked at the other evidence on the other side it's like well why do people keep you know this one thing that you mentioned where the people didn't hire me at the, when they, when they met me, um, that was a situation. You moved there. They were like, if you moved to LA, yeah. you moved back to Washington. Yeah. If you moved to LA, we got a job. Yeah. So you're like, okay. Yeah. It was a TV show. It was a hit TV show. And they had, they did a couple of shows. Uh, and they said, look, if we can't get you on show X, we're going to put you on show Y. And if we can't put you on show Y, we're going to put you on show Z. You're a smart writer. You know, they went on and on about it. And then when they met me, it was all gone. And um, so they told me how good they thought I was before they met me. Over the phone. Over the phone. So the confidence came from, it's like, why, why do people at the highest levels keep asking me for advice if I don't know what I'm doing? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the other thing it's, is. Let's just call it, it's just racism. That's all it is. That's, that's all, all it, it is. It's not, it's not uh, miscommunication. It's not, it's just racism. Well, if it goes on for 30 years, yeah, <laughs> you know, you know um, with a thing here or there. And then sometimes the things that I did get were sort of political. Like there was a, comic, well, there was a comic book I, I did. And uh, the reason I got to do it, um, it had actually, this story had already been rejected by this company. But there was an editor there who didn't get along with all the other editors there and he was quitting. And so on his way out the door, he's like, you know what? I'm going to publish your story. <laughs> right? That's, and that's how it got published because no kidding. Yeah. Because it was sort of, he was sort of sticking it to them because he didn't like that. Well, so you got published and then you found out later it was just as a spite. No, he told me that. Yeah. Oh, he, he told, just told you that. Yeah. He just told me. And if it's the one I'm thinking of, it went on to do really well, right? It did very well. Yeah. Is yeah. it the one that got framed in like that producer's? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So then you end up having this studio producer who's a big wig. They framed it and they have it in their office. That's how well it did. Yeah. That was the one you're talking about. Yeah. And that was just done out of spite. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had more than one job that way. Like just some political thing. 
Like, but did, I, but I it, got to write it because what blows my mind is because I know this, the inside story on that one. Yeah, and it like is literally hanging on this giant producer's wall <laughs> at your favorite comic in the particular series, right? right. That they make movies about. Yeah, and I would always go like, yeah, but Brian, why didn't that producer? who has it fr- hang hanging on their wall have you write the next one that's what i that's where it was always like they'll you'll get the acknowledgement of like oh man i framed it it's on my wall it's my favorite version <laughs> that's my favorite story in the series of these comics yeah that i make the motion pictures about yeah and i'm always waiting for you to go like and then so of course you know when they made the next one they- <laughs> yeah no 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 yeah no um you know and it you know it 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 does a number on you at first and it can, um, you know, I think you asked me how I didn't get bitter. I, d- I still don't, I still can't wrap but, my head around it, but I, it's not like I didn't get bitter. It, it, that's, that's not what happened. What happened is I worked my way through it. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, it's funny because I would have white friends who would see me struggle over the years and they'd say, well, why don't you, you should just quit. Uh, You know, maybe you could do something else. And what's interesting about that, there's two things about that. One is this is something uh, telling stories, particularly particularly on film and then second, you know, in, in comics, but particularly on film, something I've wanted to do since I can remember since I was about five years old. Um, Something I feel, uh, I have an aptitude for something I feel that um, um, and people ask me when I chose this, I did not choose it. It chose me. Um, Love for film, love for story. Oh yeah. I didn't choose it. It wasn't a decision thing. It wasn't one of those things. I never had a moment's doubt about what I wanted to do. I mean, I took a little sidetrack here or there, but it was always in service of getting to the, I don't think people really know how crazy it is. The stuff that, you know, like we were out at a retreat, you and me and the rest of the ownership group, right? Yeah. And we pull out this fucking, we pull out, it's like movie <laughs> trivia, like crazy a- stuff from like the 70s and 80s. So it's, yeah. And I'm pulling out these cards and it would be like some movie from like the 30s or whatever. And I'm going, all right, Brian, here's the one for you. And it would be stupid. It was TV and movies mm-hmm. and you didn't miss one. Mm-hmm. So imagine like the most obscure shit and every, we're all sitting around the dining room table and I kept on going like, Brian, how the hell? Like, it, dude, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? And I told you when we were sitting there, it's like, dude, I've, I've never seen, I have a lot of friends that are into film. Yeah. I'd never seen anybody who's like, we could pull a card and you'd be like, oh, that was the second season of blank TV show. <laughs> it yeah. premiered in 52. And I'm like, how the hell? So uh-huh. I, that's what I'm saying. I don't think that the viewers have not seen that yet. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about studying, like, mm-hmm. you studied. Right. I did. I yeah. I did study. It was a. It was obsessive when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the thing is, when I when I I don't remember what I what my point was, but I will say that what happened for me was that as I would well, you're get talking re- about how it didn't choose you. Or, right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, people telling me to quit. Right. So. Did, yeah. So. So. But what they did, I thought. Well, first of all, two things. If I quit, they win. Right. They win. If I quit, they win. So I can't quit. The other thing is, if I quit, I'll still be black doing something else. Right? So, right? So, you know, I can't, it's not something you can escape. Right? Um, so, uh, 
Yeah. So I had to work through it because there was no, I put too much, too many hours. Um, and I have too much of my brain dedicated to this thing to, uh, to give up on it. And so I had to work out how I was going to continue to do that. Um, and it wasn't easy. And there, there were some things about it that were helpful in that I would get rejected. There would be a reason or they'd say the reason and I would get better at that thing, whatever they said the reason was. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make that my thing. I'm going to figure that out and I'd figure it out. And then something else would happen and they'd say this and I'd figure that out and I'd figure the next thing out and I'd figure the next thing out. Um, to the point where I, I remember I got a rejection from a studio and they gave me a list of screenwriting books to, to, to read. And I'm like, I've read all these books. Um, and if they looked at my script and they don't know that I've read all these books, then they don't know anything about what they're talking about. And I thought, I could write one of these books. And I did. Is that really the genesis? That's one of the, yeah. That led to Invisible Ink? Yeah. Because you said, I could write one of these? Yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. So they told you to read these books, and you're like, I already read them. In fact, I could write one. Yeah. And then you were like, why don't I? <laughs> yeah. Kind that's, of. That's yeah. amazing. That was, that was uh, one of the, the ways that Invisible Ink came. The other way it came was uh, the first class I ever taught um, a woman in the class said, um, she said, you should write a book. You're really good at teaching this. This is the first class I ever taught. She says, you're really good at teaching this. And I said, yeah, thank you. Sometimes people say that I should write a book. And then she, she looked me dead in the eye and she says, no, it's your responsibility to write this book. And I took that seriously. Um, Why did you take that so seriously? Because it's very hard to think of yourself as one of those people, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, um, like I'm not important. I'm just me. You know, it's, it's very hard to see yourself the way other people see you. Um, and so I just thought, well, I'm just some guy teaching a screenwriting class. I'm not, you know, but the, when she said that, I thought about there are people who I wish had written more about their craft. Like when I was studying, I'm like, I wish this person had said more. I wish this person had written more. You mentioned guys like Billy Wilder, folks like that. Yeah, I wanted to know more about how they did what they did, and um, and I thought if people are asking that from me, um, then I'm going to give it because I didn't get it from the people I wanted to get it from often. So um, uh, so I just took that on and thought, well, whatever I think of myself is separate and apart from what other people are thinking about me and what they're getting from what I'm saying. And if, if people feel like I'm giving them something of value, then, um, then I guess it is my responsibility to do that. Um, I'm always mad that Spielberg doesn't do commentary on, on his DVDs or, you know, he doesn't talk about his work that way. Um, and I feel like he's not passing on, um, the knowledge that he has, um, you can get it by studying his work. You can get it if you just look at all his work and say, look how he's doing this and look how he always does this and look, you know, but uh, I want to know what he was thinking when he chose a particular shot and Raiders of the Lost Ark or Schindler's List or. You can know. you imagine? Yeah. But I don't know, you know, and I always feel like, well, that's not cool. That's not cool to keep that all in your head. I don't think that's fair. So you wrote it down. Yeah. Yeah, and we do this show, right? Yeah, right? it's funny because people will like comment and be like, 
I think you guys can optimize this show more. What if you did that? And then it's like, none of us are like, that's not the point of this. Right. The point this of is this not is money making enterprise. Right. No. <laughs> right. The point of this is you have so much stuff in your head. It's like, Brian, we got to get as much of this stuff out of your head. Like we, you know what I mean? Like it's so helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it's only a few people at a time, it's like, cause at least for me, man, like I've told you before, like it, nothing made sense. And they're like, Oh God, this is so much easier. Thank you. Right. Like how do we, you know, and I know that you really love helping people and helping people figure stuff out and getting people unstuck. And so I also know you're not elitist, right? I know there's a lot of folks where it's like, Hey, if you pay $3,000 this weekend and come to this writing class. And I know that you hate that, that stuff. I, I do hate it. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it's just like, they usually just use a bunch of fancy words and stuff and just take your money and don't mm-hmm. actually help you do your thing better. And I, I, I hope that, you know, but can I ask you a question about a piece of work you did? And if you don't feel like talking about it, that's fine. Yeah. And you probably know the piece I'm going to talk about just because it was in the news this week. Or okay. It was, it was being talked about, right? And uh-huh. that's Harry the Cop. Okay. Harry the Cop. Can we yeah. talk about that? We can talk about that. I'm just saying, like I saw it on social media and stuff. And so it's yeah. kind of, I, I don't, I'm just saying what led to, how did Harry the Cop happen? And what is Harry the Cop? Harry the Cop is a comic book that uh, I did with a friend of mine, Wayne Cash. Uh, Wayne drew it. Um, Wayne was in art school at the time. And so in order to draw the book, he had to make it an assignment. (laughs) Is that really how that happened? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so um, I thought it would be interesting to do um, a children's book, like a picture book, but to make, to do a serious topic. And I had that idea for a while. And then living in L.A. Uh, at that time in the 80s, uh, pre, pre-riot L.A., you could feel that that was going to happen. You could feel this is before, you know. You could the, feel that what was going to happen. That, that, there was, that the city was going to explode. I mean, the cops would pull me over for no reason. And, you know, everybody I knew who was black had a story about cops doing this terrible thing or that terrible thing, you know. Yeah. And, and the weird thing is, I was naive enough to think, I'm in my early 20s, I was naive enough to think, well, everybody must know this is going on, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's going on right in the open. Um, and in fact, I had seen other news footage of uh, police officers. Uh, and we're being, talking about police brutality. Like, yeah. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember I saw, I think it was in Long Beach. If it wasn't Long Beach, I apologize to the Long Beach Police Department, but I think it was in Long Beach. Um, there was a party... And uh, they, the cops had been called on this party. It was too loud or whatever. And I saw these cops beating a guy with their, with their nightsticks. Um, and the guy went limp and went unconscious. And they continued to hold him up and beat him. And you, were, you saw that? I happen. saw that on the news. I saw it on the news. Yeah. The interesting thing is it wasn't the only time I'd seen anything on the news. I had seen plenty of things on the news that were pretty bad. Uh, and then I would say the next day, like, hey, did you guys see that to my white friends? And they like, they, well, no, huh? No, it was like off their radar. I was like, how can this be off your radar? This is completely uncool. And um, but it was it was not it didn't register. And then the Rodney King. But that happened after we wrote Harry. But the Rodney King thing tape really um, uh, got people. Um, it made people aware. And I have a theory as to why that happened. Um, because there had been other beatings I'd seen and they didn't hit the national news. Why? 
Well, it was during the first Gulf War, or it was right after the first Gulf War, during the first George Bush's war. And uh, there were lots of parades uh, for the troops coming back because, you know, after Vietnam, the troops had been spit on and called yeah. baby killers and stuff. And so yeah. I think the country was like, we're not going to do that again. We're going to welcome these troops home. And so there was every story was a parade story. And I think all of a sudden there was another. It's almost like what happened with this, that COVID, 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 COVID. Oh, another news story. Right. We yeah. don't have to talk about COVID. I think it was a very similar thing. It became another interesting thing to talk about that wasn't a parade, which was probably getting old at that point is from mm. a news perspective. I think that's the only reason that people said, oh, this was worse. It was like, I've seen plenty. This is not worse. Right. I've seen plenty. You didn't care before. Yeah. Right. But they kept running it. In fact, I have a somewhere I have a VHS tape of uh, all the Rodney King news footage because I started recording it because I thought no one would care and it would go away and I would need proof. <laughs> I still really? have that someplace. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's happened so many times. Yeah. And so when the right, like when it, when it, when it, when people got involved, you were surprised by that because yeah. you'd seen it so many times. You're like, it'll just be like any other time. Yeah. Let me archive this because no one's going to care. Yeah. Or believe me. All you folks at home, this is pre YouTube. So you would actually have to record things. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, but Harry the Cop was before the Rodney King thing came out. So actually, Harry the Cop hit the stands the first day of the riots in L.A. You're kidding. No. But why? You said you wanted to make a children's kind of color a pop, not color, like, like, like kind a, of illustrated like a picture book, book. Yeah. But with a picture book with a serious topic. Why did you choose police brutality? Well, because it was... Um, it was something that when I would bring it up, my white friends would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it was, it was common knowledge. It was to people who look like me, it was common knowledge. If you were black and brown, it wasn't a controversial topic. It was just the way things were. It's like saying yeah. water is wet, yeah. right? Uh, what was interesting about it was, uh, so uh, we did it. It was like the first thing that came to mind when I'm like, hey, let's do something together. And I had this idea and maybe it can be this. And so, you know, I wrote it. And uh, I think I, I wrote it in. Hold on, before you get to that, how did you get that? You can find Harry the Cop. You should look it up for anybody who wants to see it. Like, how did you get that story approved? Well, because <laughs> nobody, because uh, at this point, really, no one cares. Right. Well, no one approved it. Right. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so, so, as a matter of fact, when Wayne wanted to do it, what was interesting was all the resistance to Harry the Cop. Harry the Cop. There was a lot of resistance. So. Uh, when I wrote it, uh, Wayne pitched it as an assignment in one of his classes or maybe two of his classes. Um, and the teachers were like, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. Right. Um, it was too hot to handle. And they didn't think it's like, well, not all cops are like this. And what are you saying? And, you know, they, there's a, one of the things that has always bothered me is an almost reflexive response to defend the system. Well, not all cops are like this. I didn't say that. Did I say that? It's called Harry the Cop. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? It's called the Harry the Cop. That's great. It's very specific. <laughs> yeah, That's you know. Um, but, but that, that reflex to always prop up the system is really interesting. I've never thought about that. Yeah, I hear it all the time. Well, you don't know. Maybe you caught that person on a bad day. But, oh, you're just up on, okay, you're just upholding yeah. the system, right? It's reflexive. Yeah. It's like saying, not all priests are like that. Right, right, yeah. If you said that, people would be like, slow down a second. <laughs> right, yeah. 
there's still <laughs> enough happening and enough right. trauma happening that we need to stop this right now. Right. Any other subject, people would be like, <laughs> that doesn't, you know. Right. Well, not all oil rigs are leaking oil into the... <laughs> right. Like, but the ones that are, are destroying the whole world. <laughs> yeah. The logic doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. way to ignore the problem. Yeah. And so that happened at first, but eventually... I also love that Wayne's pitching this in school. Yeah. Like, that's a hell of a, like, senior project or whatever it was. You know <laughs> yeah, what it was. I mean? yeah. 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 And so, um, anyway, so uh, he was able to get it through. Finally, they approved it, and they were still... There was always a little, like, you could tell. They were like, oh, okay, we'll do it, but it feels weird, you Did know? Did ask you to take anything out? Not that I can recall. Okay. Uh, not that I can recall. So, uh, so then... This was really interesting. So uh, we made a proposal. We sent it out to all these comic book companies that were like very left and cutting edge. And they all went, whoa, hey, we don't. We're not doing this. Not this. Not this. You know, hey, and and you would hear not all cops are like this, you know, and uh, and a lot of my white friends. From the progressive comic. And also comics is always funny to me. Like you've told me all sorts of stuff about the comic industry. I'm always like, I always thought the comic industry would be very progressive. (laughs) You're like, no, man. Like, right. No, just Google comic book writers and look at the pictures that come up. <laughs> you won't find or me. filmmakers. Yeah, just look at the pictures that come up. That's all that's, you know. Um, so, uh, 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 oh, so anyway, so uh, we had, you know, a mock-up of the book and we, we sent it out to people. And like I said, a lot of my white friends would read the book and they'd say, uh, not all cops are like this immediately. Like it was weird. And... Um, and again, called Harry the cop, but that's, you know, okay. So, uh, and they couldn't acknowledge that there was a systemic problem. It was like, it was weird because like I was saying, for us, it was like saying water is wet and people were like, well, yeah. why not, you know, water, some water is steam, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, um, and so that was, that was, uh, I was surprised by that. I thought that people would um, at least understand I thought that they would say, well, this is happening to my friend. I guess he has a different reality than I do. That's not what they did. And so, and so what happened was uh, we went to the San Diego Comic-Con and we pitched it, or we had sent the book out to companies. And then we, and this is when the con was still pretty small. Like, yeah, it was, it was getting bigger, but it was still small. It wasn't like, like, you have crazy stories. Yeah. Those like walking around talking to like, you could talk to anybody at, yeah. back then. Yeah, the first one I went to was in 86. You could walk up to anybody and talk. And they would draw you a sketch. wouldn't cost you anything. Now, you know, that yeah. doesn't, none of that flies anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, none of it. Uh, but back then you could, it was cool. It was small. It was all, it was, was just there, comics. Did you meet Maurice Noble there or something? Like you I met Maurice there. Noble there, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it was So insane. that was the climate. So you showed up with just the book to walk <laughs> yeah. around and pitch it just to. Yeah. Because uh, could you do that? Could you just walk up to like. Well, we, a lot of people, like, the first year I went to the con, I went with somebody who was a professional comic book writer, and I was, wanted to break in. And she said, you know that there are a whole bunch of pros here pitching to editors. I'm like, no. She goes, oh, yeah, there's a whole other con underneath the con oh, right? of people pitching to editors yeah. and stuff. And so, um, and so the next year I, I came back ready to pitch. Um, I went 13 years straight to that con and got almost no work out of it and always had a solid thing to pitch. Um, yeah. And got almost no work out of it. Um, I won't even go to the con anymore. 
I do not go to the San Diego Comic-Con. Somebody's like, hey, let's go. I don't go. I don't go anymore. Um, there was a time when I wouldn't even work, walk into a comic book shop. I wouldn't walk in um, for years. I wouldn't even but go you've in. written so many pieces. You, you wouldn't even, you're just like, I'm just done with the. I'm done because you know what? You can, you can walk into a comic book shop. Well, you probably can't now because COVID, but, but, but when this is all over. There was a time. Yeah. When there was, in, the, in the before times when you could walk into a comic book shop. Uh, yeah. you, you, none of them or almost none of, them, none of them were written by anybody who looked like me. Like you could just pull comics randomly and it's like, no, this is, it's, it's the most Jim Crow industry, right? Like, no, we don't, especially for writers. Like, I think, um, and then we'll get back to Harry the Cop. I think there's a, there's a thing in the American psyche where we are, uh, and if you think about it, it goes to the beginning of America, even before in colonial America. I think that there is something in our sort of cultural infrastructure that allows us um, that allows us to exploit black bodies, but not utilize black minds. Right? So, sure, so sports exploit black bodies. Right, but it, yeah. but not utilize black. Not mind. utilize black minds, right? Wow, that's crazy. So, if you want to be, you know what? If you want to be a bouncer, if you want to be a security guard, right, player, right, basketball, right. You want to play basketball. You want to do these kinds of right. But the second we need you to go to war, yeah. But the second it slips into a brain job, or a job they think of as a brain job, yeah. writer, director. You know what I mean? In anything, airline pilot, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Then it's like, well, no, we don't. We we can't even imagine you doing that job. We can't even, you know. So no. So um. Uh, and so it's easier, a little easier for uh, artists of color to get into comics because even though it takes a lot of intelligence to write a, uh, to draw a comic book, it's not considered. You can just chalk it up to talent. Boy, that person's really talented. Mm. Talent you can give people, right? But but thought, that's a much harder thing, right? Um, wow, and you so, can give people talent. You can give people, but not thought. Right. So you can say, oh, well, they're just talented. They're just, that person can just draw. That person could just sing and dance. But not smart. That person, but not intelligence. Hmm. Right? And so, um, I mean, that's been my experience. That's what I see over and over again. Um, that it's very hard, very hard, to the point of almost being impossible to get into some industries where they think that it's a brain job anyway so we go to uh we go to san diego and actually uh will eisner read harry the cop right in front of us no kidding and loved it right will eisner was all about it wow that's will, amazing how did that feel that was amazing okay and in fact will eisner? will eisner um well the highest award in comics is the uh -huh. eisner award yeah. So that's who he is. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Just for right. folks that aren't into comics. <laughs> right. That's all you kind of need to know. So yeah. you met him and said, Will you read this? And he was like, sure. Yeah. Somebody that's asked so him to cool. read. Somebody else asked him to read and he read it. And he and he and in fact people were coming up to him because he was kind of a pretty famous guy. And he's like, Oh, I'm reading this right now. Like he pushed people away and he read the book. And then the next year I saw him, he said, I was talking about you in a class I was teaching and talking about your book. Like it was no very kidding. cool. Yeah. But other than Will Eisner, what we got was uh, that's a your lot. curse, man. 
yeah. your curse is the people at the top get it. That's like the amount of people, like when I, I hear about like, you're like I'm, I'm going to dinner with this person or that person and we're going to talk about this stuff, it's always people at the top of the game. Mm-hmm. It's the people in the middle of the game, man. That, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah, like, it doesn't surprise me. He was like, man, that book was great. I talked about it in class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, but can you get somebody at so-and-so middle of the road comic, right? They're like, yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's, I'm not good with people in the middle. <laughs> yeah. I can't impress them. Yeah. Um, that's just the way it is. I don't know. I don't know. You know but you but, knew you had something special because he said, this is great. Did that give yeah, you that like, helped. you and Wayne that like, helped. like, Wind in the well, sails. We, like, yeah, we were. We were. We, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I mean, you know yeah. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one comic book company that was known for doing radical, you know, stuff. And it was funny because you would give it to people, and it was almost like it was hot. They would be like, "This is like, I can't." Like they were so. It was so against how they thought about. It's like, boy, the police must be completely different. Like it was kind of a wake up call for me. It's like the police must be completely different for you than they are for me. Your yeah. interactions, because it was like sacrilegious. What we was like, I you can't. I mean, and some of these companies were like, like they'd do anything if it was sexual, if it was this, like anything, Violence, in their books. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in this, it was like, yeah, we can't touch this. We can't, yeah. you know, police brutality. We're not going anywhere near. Yeah, that. and in fact, some companies said, oh no, everybody in the office read it. We passed it around. We were like, we were, but we. I mean, we're can't. not going to publish it. Yeah. But- yeah. Um, but finally, we found a guy, uh, uh, Dan Votto, who uh, ran a, uh, who owned a place called um, uh, uh, Slave Labor, Slave, La- Slave Labor Graphics, and he published it. He liked it and published it. But, um, but uh, before that, I will say this. Um, Wayne and I went to, um, uh, we had to, this is before computers and desktops and stuff, you know, so we had to get things physically typeset, you know, yeah. to put, you know, like, okay, we need to get this book typeset. So is that we, just so you had versions to hand out to try yeah, to, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Wayne and I go to a place in LA that has a big sign that says what they do and typesetting is one of the things that they do. So we're like, oh, great. Let's go there. We go there. We're like, we need this typeset. Oh, we don't do typesetting. There's a, you have that. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't yeah. do that. You don't sell hot dogs. I mean, there's a big hot dog <laughs> on top of the building. Yeah. Yeah. They said no. So we went across the street. They said, oh, you might want to go across the street. We go across the street and the guy looks at us. He says, oh, um, you know what? We're the most expensive place in town. You probably don't want to go with us. There's a place down the street. We're like, okay. So we walk down the street and we're standing there and there's a guy on the phone. Place is empty. It's like in the basement of this place. and Place is empty. Nobody's in there. And the guy's on the phone for a long time. And we just wait because we've been to two other places, you know? So we're like, well, let's just wait. We wait and we wait. And as we're waiting, uh, a white guy comes in like an architect or something. He comes in and stands behind us. The guy gets off the phone and says, looks past us and says, can I help you to the guy behind us? And uh, the While guy was to get this particular comic. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Exa- you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what was cool was that guy actually said, these guys were here before me. <laughs> I've been in situations where that doesn't happen. But in this case, the guy was like, these guys were here before me. So, and then the guy was like, Oh, I guess I better help these guys. And that's, how we got it typeset. And the guy ended up wow. making a bunch of mistakes and it was really weird. So um, anyway, um, the book finally did get published and um, it hit the stands the day, the first day of the riots. Uh, how, what was the reception like? 
Can you give an overview of what the comic is about? It's just, I mean, it it really is just about an abusive cop. I don't know what else yeah. to say. That's what it is. It's just a, just a, it's a comic book, a picture book, almost like a kid's book of, uh, about an abusive cop. I don't know what else to say about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so there's the first day of the riot. Yeah. That's the day it hit the stands. And uh, um, that was fascinating because what, what happened after that was very interesting to me. Hmm. So what happened after that was um, I got calls from all my white friends who had dismissed the book saying, oh, my God, you were right. How, really? How, how because of the riot. Because of the riot. You see that happening now. Oh my God, what people have been saying for well, years. Because I saw it's on social media. Yeah. And I was like, Harry the Cop's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, no, but I don't mean just Harry the Cop. I mean people's awareness. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. Is, yeah. Right? The same thing happened then. Oh my God, this has been going on this whole time. Yeah. What did you think I was talking about? Right? Yeah. So, so everybody, you know, they called me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't believe you. And this was nine. What was this? 90. It's like, it was, uh, we wrote the book and I wrote the book in 90. It took me a while to draw it. I came out well, ninety-two. Ninety-two. Yeah. Just yeah. for context. Yeah. And so you got a bunch of acknowledgement. Yeah. When it did uh, come out. When it did come out, a bunch of acknowledgement. Some some uh actually something was really fascinating. So um the there's a there's a book, uh, like a catalog, um uh that all the retailers order from. And so uh, the, you know, they, they look through and they go, oh, Spider-Man, you know, John Romita Jr. is going to be drawn Spider-Man, you know, whatever. I'll order those, right? And so they order all their books. All the books say is, um, I mean, all the, the catalog says is, this is who's drawing the book. This is who's writing the book. Uh, this is what the book is about. For Harry the Cop, they editorialized. They don't editorialize. They said, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, um, it's a diatribe about police brutality and uh, pretty good if you're into that kind of thing. And I'm like, they never, in fact, they ended up pretty good if you're into books about police brutality. Yeah. It was really weird. Um, I still have a Xerox of it somewhere that, that thing, my, uh, the publisher actually wrote them and said, what is up with this? And they, they apologized to him. I never heard an apology, but they apologized to him. Oh, we shouldn't have done that. That's the only time that I've ever seen them editorialize about something. Wow. It's not a book of reviews. Right? Yeah. 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 It's just, this is what's coming out. That's all it is. But for us. So it's getting get, submarine before it even gets out. Yeah. There. Yeah. And there were people who wouldn't order it. In fact, I got a letter, a fan letter from a guy in Philadelphia. Um, and he said, uh, he wanted the book and he said, you know, a friend of mine got this book and I went back to the comic book shop to get it and, uh, and it was sold out. And I said to the, uh, he said, I said to the store owner, Hey, uh, will you order some more Harry, the cops? And the guy said, no, um, I'm not going to order anymore. He goes, if I'd known what it was about, I never would have ordered it in the first place. And the guy says, well, look, I, you don't even have to put them on the shelf. Just order them and I'll buy them out. And the guy's like, no, no. Wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of resistance to it. I mean, all across the board, there was just resistance all the way down the line. Um, and so some stores wouldn't carry it. Um, it, it was fascinating. There was, there was this just upholding of the system. The system works for me. So screw you. 
That's essentially what they were saying. You know, um, I always think that a lot of the resistance, no matter what people say, is really what they're saying is, shut up and let us kill you. That's what they're saying. Shut up and let us kill you. Hey, the cops are doing this. Yeah, yeah, shut up and let us kill you. That's what it is. That's what they're saying. Hey, this has happened to me. Shut up and let us kill you. That's all I ever hear now. What blows my mind about it is if we applied that logic to anything else. You know, these women are being beaten by their husbands. That's happening. This abuse is happening. But not, not everybody, not everybody's husband is. And you're like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. but those guys are. <laughs> right. And they're hurting people. Right. And you should care about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting thing for me right now because um, I'm getting a lot of texts from people and people are saying, well, this is, it's different now. It's going to change, you know? And um, yeah. Like, well, how are you processing that? It's different now. I don't know if that's true. Cause you've told me several times, you're like, it's a cycle, right? Like it's yeah. well, enough. Think about it for a second. Then the, okay. So uh, in 90, Mm -hmm. uh, or in 92, I'm 27, whatever it is, yeah. 27 years old. In uh, 1965, the year I was born, there were the Watts riots in Los Angeles, sparked over police brutality, right? So 27 years later, it happens again. Now, it's 28 years later, or whatever it is, and yeah. it happened again. It seems to be a cycle. And every time people say it's different this time. I was like, you know, the same people who told me racism was over when Obama is elected, was elected are the same people telling me that it's different now. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's like, you know, it's pretty clear now the election of Obama did not fix racism. It's pretty clear now. So um, I'll I, I don't know if it'll take, you know, I don't know if it'll take. It's exhausting to deal with. And I think when people don't have to deal with it at a certain point, they tap out, you know, I think I was talking to somebody about this. I was like, it's, it's interesting to me that it has now become fashionable to be anti-racist. Right. And, and like any fashion. Yeah. I mean, one season it's like, everybody's got cargo shorts on. Mm -hmm. Right. But the word fashionable is what I, I responded to is like, interesting. It's fashionable. It's not, it's not a human dignity issue. It's fashionable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And fashions go in and they come out. You know, they mm -hmm. go out. We were into that last year. We're not into that this year. Yeah. Or, you know, people make superficial changes and think that they've changed it. It's like, even if we, here's the thing. Police brutality is the end of, a, police don't come out of nowhere. They're not from outer space. They're from the general population. Right. So, so because they're, human and Americans, they've been trained to think a certain way. The mm. job also probably reinforces that because anytime any, they get called, it's somebody doing something bad. Right. So, right. So they don't. Right. Um, so that probably reinforces whatever biases they have. Um, that's probably just a, a symptom of the job in some ways. But, but the thing is, even if we fix this, let's say we fix the police brutality issue. Does that, change the fact that uh if you google comic book art writers right almost none of them will look like me um does that change the fact that um somebody could 
basically think I'm okay for the job until I walk in the door, right? There are all these other things. Does that change the fact that um, that redlining has still lasting impact on the economics of certain people, right? That it t- puts some people up higher and some people down lower, right? Does that change that? So, so how long are people going to be in this and how much of the system are they going to, ch- going to want to change? The, the police brutality is a symptom of another problem. Hmm. It's like thinking that because you've suppressed the cold, you don't have the cold. Like I don't cough anymore. It's like, well, you still have a cold, right? <laughs> you know? Um, and so uh, I just wonder um, how deep this will go and how long it will last. I hope, I hope, you know, look, I, I hope um, the pattern doesn't hold, but it's been since 1619. So, <laughs> You know what I mean? 1619. So let's, you know what I mean? So, I mean, if people really want to change, I think they have to ask themselves some serious questions and, and, and like and what? Ask themselves where they've been blind. Right. Um, oh, I didn't see this before. Now I see it. Maybe I should look for it. Maybe I should believe the people that I know who say these things and not dismiss what they say. I mean, there's almost, almost always an automatic dismissal of the things you say. Well, I don't know if that's racism. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's the other thing. Maybe it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe get maybe to death. Um, You know what? It would be fine if one of the maybes was maybe it's racism and it was sincere. (laughs) Right. Right. But it's almost like, let me give you a hundred other things that aren't racism. Because I, for some reason, I don't want that to be reality. For some reason, I don't want that to be the case. And I, and I wonder if, that, if the resistance comes from, if I believe in this, then I have to examine myself. And I don't want to examine myself. I'm a good person. You can be a good person and have biases, right? It's, it's not, it has nothing to do with your character. You can be a good person. Um, so... So the thing, and, and if you really want to be a good person, then maybe you want to make, examine those things, examine those biases. Um, you know, yeah, because I, 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 for a long time, I thought we need a different word. We need a word that's not racism. We need a word. Why? We need a word that allows white people to take, take it in. Racism, <laughs> it's like, like I've, said, I've said it before, but people think that racism is an accusation. So like you're accusing me of being racist, right? It's not an accusation. It's almost always an observation. Oh, dang. That's good. Right? Like, it's like, do you think Donald Trump is racist? Well, it's not really up for debate. He started his campaign by saying Mexicans are murdering murders and rapists. Yeah. Why are we debating two and a half years later? People were debating that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, do you really want me to read all the stuff that he said? Like, right? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, and then what you hear is this. You gotta understand that's not what he meant. And then, and so it's, uh, it's, I love, it's amazing to watch it because he'll say like, like one sentence and then people go, here's what he meant. And then they'll talk for five minutes. Right. <laughs> right. A way to make that <laughs> right. one sentence not insane. Right. Right. But that's, that's the interesting. Well, that's not, I know that's what he said. That's not what he meant. Or right. I know that's what I did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that's not where I'm really coming from. <laughs> right, right. But that's a really interesting one. I'd never heard it uh, explained like that. Right. And so, and so it's like, so because people feel it as an accusation, mm. 
then they defend themselves. Hmm. And I think that's what happens when they're defending the system. They're really defending themselves. That's why it's so oh, just knee jerky. And like, I got to come up with any explanation other than what you, you say it is. Mm-hmm. Um, even though every study, the weird thing is all the data will back me up. Like mm-hmm. all the data will back me up. Like if you look at the yeah. statistics of who gets to do comics or who gets to make movies or who gets to like all the statistics back me up where people live, who gets to go to what schools. Do you, like, do you remember that Gordon Parks photo where there's a little boy and there's a, there's, he, there's two baby dolls. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. There's a white baby doll and a black. It's in my, it's in the memoir. It's in my book. Oh, and the little boy's pointing at the white one. Right. right. It's the doll test. It's a famous yeah. test where um, talking about internalized racism. This still, this still happens. They can, they repeat this test, but they'll show a, a, a black kids, a white doll. And a, they do it to white kids too. They'll show them a black doll and a white doll. And they say, which one's the pretty one? And they'll point to the white doll. Which one's the smart one? They'll point to the white doll, both white kids and black kids will do it what's the ugly doll what's the stupid doll and so so you know black people understand that we internalize racism we understand it so we'll own that we internalize it so we're not asking white people to do anything that we're not doing and we understand it's like how do you think you escaped it if we didn't we couldn't escape it so how could you right you know what i mean when you say internalize how does that manifest is it is it like it, little boy going, this is what pretty, this is what smart is, and it's white? Yeah. Right. Because that's what the world tells you. Mm. So that's right. what all the stories tell you. Right. That's what all the stories right. tell stories you. Stories are powerful. Right. So if so, every day you turn on the TV and, and the good guy is always six foot tall and blonde or, or whatever. Right, whatever. Or, yeah. Right. If so, if, Einstein and, and all the, all the yeah. people going to the moon, they're all. Well, the scientists yeah. are all white and yeah. Yeah. You know, and so um, that's a problem. Everybody gets the same message. Mm. Everybody's getting the same message. And so it affects us all the same way. Right. And so, um, so I, I wish more white people understood that, that, that um, look, really black people would know, again, we know we've internalized that stuff. Right. Um, they used to sell, cream to lighten skin. I think they still do in some cultures. Any place that was colonized by Europe, there's this, any European country, there's this idea that lighter lighter skin is better. And, and I think in India, they have lightening creams, which we used to sell a lot of here. Um, uh, people straightening their hair here, black people, because it has to be closer to a European kind of hair. Um, and in fact, uh, with black women, often they are told that their hair is professional if it's their natural hair. Um, is it professional? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. That's well documented. Um, somebody just passed a law. I don't know if it was a state that passed a law that said you can't. You, you know, black women's hair comes out of their head a certain way. You can't uh, police their hair. Um, you know, but that's still happening. So, so there's this. There's this. You know, it goes way back. You know, when when you have when you want to enslave people or go to war with people, the first thing you do is dehumanize them. Yep. Right? Yep. And that's the first step. Yep. Dehumanize them, right? And you can pick anything. It doesn't matter what it is, right? It could be skin color, but it could be the way somebody talks. It could be um, it can be hair texture, texture. It can be eye shape. It can be yeah. the kind of food they eat. That's crazy, the food they eat. You know, whatever. Whatever, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, right? You just have something. to... It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter. And because we had slavery for so long and we needed to humanize 
we needed to dehumanize black people for so long, we still, that's been passed down. They didn't go anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, and what's interesting too, is that um, you would often have to hide your intelligence during slavery. So um, one of the biggest fears was, were slave rebellions. Right. Um, And so um, if you were appeared to be too smart, you could be planning a rebellion. You could be a leader. You could be, so you had to put on this. I'm not smart. I'm just happy. I'm just smart. This, this um, it's one of the reasons that um, there were a lot of uh, bebop uh, artists like Dizzy Gillespie and that generation who didn't like Louis Armstrong because they thought Louis Armstrong was playing kind of a plantation role with his smile, a happy uh, don't scare the white people attitude. Miles mm-hmm. Davis, Miles Davis was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Right. You know, you know, um, so yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I get what they were, where they were coming from. I, I think that they were growing up in a different time and a different set of circumstances. And I think that is like, I just think Louis Armstrong did what he thought he had to do at that moment in time when he was coming up. Um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, but anyway, the, the, my, my bigger point is that we, we've internalized that stuff. And so if you, if we have, we know you have, that's all, that's all, yeah. you know, everybody's eating the same thing. Yeah. And it's going to manifest itself differently. But like you, like when you said a minute ago, when you were like, every, everybody's getting the same message. Mm-hmm. If you were to, if you were to tell me, what is that message? Well, the message is um, the message is one of white supremacy, of white superiority. That's the message. That's it. It's white superiority. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't, because we associate that with the most extreme, the Nazis, right? Hmm. I'm not saying that the people that didn't hire me for that television show are Nazis. Yeah. Right. I'm not saying that, but why was the black writer I met so sure that they wouldn't hire me once they met me? And she told you that you were excited. You're like, Hey, I got, I'm down here for this interview. Yeah. She was like, Oh, you're not going to get that. Yeah. Yeah. She knew. She knew. She knew. Um, and I've told you about, uh, I won't, I won't, it's his story to tell, but, uh, a writer I know who pitched a bunch of stories to a TV show. He was a security guard on the lot and he was able to pitch stories and uh, he kept pitching them and they kept buying them. Um, and they never put him on staff. He was black and they never asked him to be on staff, even though they kept buying stories from him. They and didn't he game. sell more stories to that franchise than anyone? It, that, I don't know if that's still true, but it was true at, at the, the time, time. That, that no one else had sold more stories to this particular And the franchise show. you're talking about is one of the biggest franchises in history. Yeah. Yeah. And he sold more than anyone. And he's still a security guard. Yeah. I think he's a security guard to this day. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Like you would think it'd be like, great. Let's, let's write some stuff. Let's, you know, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. If you're buying stories from this person all the time, you're like, you know, we can cut to the quick and just, yeah. And that's what I've seen because, you know, I, I, I've had enough friends and people I know and friends of friends um, who are white. And I see what happens. What happens is somebody goes, Boy, that person has a really good story mind. 
or whatever. Let's bring them into the fold, right? Maybe they think they're not the best writer, but we can train them, you know, or whatever. Um, they, they, there well, is what some, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. You've told that story before. Yeah, they did. They it went with out the, and found all these people with a ton of talent, but hadn't been writers yet. Women. Yeah. yeah right? They found women to write on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. In fact, I would say they were more active. It's starting to change again because it's fashionable. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it wasn't fashionable in 1970 when they were doing on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, they were doing it because they were trying to make the best show and the, the main characters were women and they were like two guys creating a show. They're like, we need more women writers and they went and found them and trained them to do the job. Yeah. And some of those writers and it were worked. amazing. Yeah. And it, <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore show worked. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. I think it has still more Emmys than any other sitcom. I think it had 27 Emmys or something. Wow. Yeah. But imagine like being in their position and going, because I'm sure everybody's like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You're going to hire a bunch of women? You don't need women to write a, a show about a woman. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> and they broke all the rules and they made history. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and they ended up doing a show that had something to do, you know, that was at the height of that iteration of the women's movement. Mm-hmm. Um, which when they created the show, that wasn't what they had in mind to do a show that dealt with that those issues it's just that, that they had women around coming up with ideas and writing stories and so they were able to be right in line with the times um and in fact so right in line with the times that it's um unfortunately a lot of those issues are the same issues so they're, yeah. they're kind of evergreen like that's the crazy thing is like I, you know i went through the series when you were like jesse you gotta watch this and you're like you could these episodes cheers is like there's a lot of stuff in cheers same thing yeah. you're like none of this has changed uh for what what needs to happen which aspect so that there's not another generation of artists like yourself or writers or directors who have hundreds of stories of this shit like what needs to happen this is what i've said so we had we had a filmmaker at belief Mm -hmm. who um uh good filmmaker, good guy, smart guy. And he's decided he was going to move to LA and become a filmmaker. And I was talking to him about it before he left. And uh, he said, uh, he goes, you know, and he's, he's a tall, good looking white guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, and, um, and uh, he said to me, well, some people think I have privilege. I'm like, dude, you have privilege. I said, that's not a crime. And, and I'm like, that's not a crime, right? That's not a crime. But I said, if I've helped you learn something, which I think I had, here's what I want you to do. All I need you to do, you get, you're going to get positioned. You're going to get stuff that has not been allowed to me because I've seen that happen, right? I teach people, they go off and they oh, have a and career. he's blown up. Like yeah. I see a spot. His new spot is on TV constantly. Yeah, he's... And you told him that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I, all I said to him is like, look, when you're in a position of authority and you can decide who's in the room, look and see who's not in the room. Notice who's not in the room and mm-hmm. make sure you get them in the room. I go, look, things may change and it might not always be black people. It might be somebody else. It might be, yeah. you know, a disabled person or it might be like, just look in the room. It is disabled yeah. people. They're never in the room, right? Yeah. So, right, right. Look and see who's not in the room and get them in the room. Is it women that's not in the room? Yeah. Get them in the room, right? Um, 
That's how I think it's going to change when people notice, because what happens is I, I worked at a company and I was the only black person in this company working on this show. And, uh, um, and then what was weird was uh, when that season of the show ended, we all got laid off and then they hired everybody back but me. So, right, because uh, they, they were in a crunch when I got hired. That's often how I can get jobs when they're in a crunch and they need somebody who can do the job really fast. Mm-hmm. Get that guy. And then once I've solved the problem, put out the fire. It's like I'm a firefighter. Mm. Oh, good. That guy put out the fire. No, you don't get a job as a firefighter. You just, yeah. you know, so, um, so, but, uh, so they needed somebody to put out the fire. Once they had that, then they didn't, they didn't bring me back. And I, I thought, you know, if you look around the room and you go, you should notice, Hey, there's nobody of color here. There's no women here. There's no whatever. Notice that stuff. Notice it. Don't take it for granted. Don't think it just ended up that way. It's hardly ever an accident. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, and notice it, noticing it helps because noticing it, I mean, action is the next thing. So hopefully there'll be action. But the first thing you have to do is notice. I've, I've noticed that people don't notice, you know, I was, um, <laughs> and let me, let me say this too. I, and I think that guy who you trained, who's now in LA doing great. I think he'll do that. I think he will do that. He said he would. He just was because I know he's probably listening. I just want to make sure he knows that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I have no doubt that he'll do it. Yeah. I'll have no doubt that he'll do it. Um, and actually, I've told that to several people. Mm. Um, you know, he's not the only person I've said that to. It's changed, man. That's what, like, we've, I've heard you tell, I don't even know, 100 of these stories or whatever. And it's always like, but Brian, what, we, what has to happen? Like, you know right. what I mean? And, yeah. and so the first thing is you have to be able to see it. Yes. And then you have to be willing to take action. And I'm assuming when you take action, you have to be willing to have it cost you something. Yeah, I think <laughs> you know, that's Because it's true. really easy to do yeah. to do something that doesn't cost you anything you know like to retweet something or whatever right right you know, I'm right, taking right. A stand. I right yeah. shit and i know i'm gonna get blowback it's well, like cool. remember well, the whole thing it's easy to be brave from a distance yeah well also it's easy to be brave when you're not alone right so how many in the last few days how many tweets how many you know how many things on social media going oh gotta, yeah yeah right but nobody's doing it when nobody else is doing it. Yes, exactly. Right? It's like, do it when nobody else is doing it. Yeah. You know? Um, well, it's the, you know what it is? It's Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They ran that spot when it was like that. Unpopular. And, and then you see the commissioner come out and he's like, boy, this is really, and it's like, no, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> you pushed him out of the league. Yeah when it was popular for you to do that. Right. Now that it's unpopular, you're like, man, what's going on? We really got to do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Destroyed the guy's whole career. Yeah. For doing what? Yeah. Saying something that was true. <laughs> right. And, and then here's the crazy shit. So I grew up, my dad was in the military, my brother's in the military. And the, the one that blows my mind is it's like, well, he was uh not honoring our flag. And he's like, you know what else doesn't honor our flag? Taking our troops and sending them into our cities right, to right. attack other Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like, just stop with this bullshit. Like, yeah. sell that shit to the tourists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just bonkers. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. 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 
if more people stand up when it's not popular, um, I think then I think that'll be a real change. And when people, um, again, when people notice like, Hey, this company seems to be all white dudes. Maybe we should fix that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, and also really be welcoming. I, I, I was, um, working, excuse me, with a studio and helping them with a project. And this is the very, this is the very beginning of this movie. They don't really have a story yet. And I'm helping them shape the story. I'm working with the director and a development person and we're working it out. And there was a situation with two groups of two communities in this mm-hmm. sport. And they were talking about how to get them together and whatever. I can't really talk about the story, but that was mm-hmm. right. And so knowing some things that I know, I mentioned, um, I mentioned musicians. I mentioned um, uh, that in the days of, of segregation, you couldn't have integrated bands, right? So in the days of like the big band era, you couldn't have integrated bands you could just there's a white band there was a white band you know black band you couldn't so what would happen is musicians don't care musicians are all about like can this person play so what would happen is the white musicians a lot of them would play their gigs and then go to the black part of town and jam with the black musicians and hang out right yeah. uh benny goodman used to do that and uh then benny goodman uh i think that's where he fi- found lionel hampton who was one of his he integrated his ba- and they were like you can't do that he's like i'm doing it so, <laughs> so so um which was cool of him uh but he just went that guy's a good musician why wouldn't i want the best musician in my band right yeah. um that's a kind of bravery that kind of thing like no i'm just gonna find the best person and put him in my band you know um that kind of bravery is is um the kind of thing that people need to do because it still needs to be done. But anyway, so I mentioned that just as an analogy about how two groups got together and this development person in this meeting flipped out, flipped out. We're not going to do anything like that. You know, we're not, I'm like, I'm not trying to get you to do anything about Jim Crow and segregation. I'm just using this as an analogy about two groups and how they got together. And what I realized was, they don't want me to bring my entire self here. Mm. Right? Because my entire self, yeah, I know story. I know this. This happens to be the history I have access to. I know this stuff. Mm. So mm. you're telling me, oh, I don't want to know by any of your actions, by any of your positions, by any of your points of view that you are a black man. I don't want to know that. So... So every idea then that comes out of me is, has to be measured. Is this going to push buttons? Is this going to push buttons, right? Oh, I better, how can I word this differently? How do I not bring up race here? How do I not bring this, you know? And so um, that gets, uh, that's exhausting. That's another layer. That's another thing I have to do on top of trying to solve this story problem. You're already at work. You're already trying to solve the problem. And you're having to stop, like, here's an answer. Here's how we can do it. Well, hold on. Maybe that's right. And so, so you also have to be accepting of the people you bring in and their points of view. Yeah. You're doing the job. One number one, you're repressing and then you have to accept what's coming on the other side of the table. 
Yeah. But it's they have their to, cultural references yeah. or whatever. Right. Right. But they, but that's when, when you bring people in, you have to let them bring them their whole selves. Right. Like on the, Why do you think the that happened. Like, like when you said the, I mean, that's for, or I guess in general, why do you think that doesn't, the, the, why can't people bring their whole selves? Because you mentioned the inviting piece, and I think like that, that, that specific situation makes sense because she, I'm assuming she, this person, mm-hmm. this development person thought you were trying to make it like a racial issue or something. I don't like know. I had I'm an trying agenda. to figure out why she, agenda, got it. Okay. Like I had an agenda. My agenda was to just tell the story, right? Right. That's my agenda. I didn't have another agenda, right? Right. I know what they make. I know they weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I had no other agenda, but I think her reaction was that I had some agenda that I did not have. So how do you create a inviting environment? I, th- I Well, I just think that you have to understand that one of the things you're bringing when you bring diversity into a space is you're bringing diversity of experience and, and thought. Yeah. Not just a person who doesn't look like you. Right. But probably a person who doesn't think like you because they don't look like you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because they've had a whole different set of experiences because yep. of the body they walk around in. Mm. You know? The body I, they walk around in. I think the body you walk around in teaches you something about the world. Yes. You know yep. what I mean? Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. You know, if you're an overweight person, you know one thing about how people are and how the world is. And if you're a little person, you know something about the world mm. and how the world, you know, like your body teaches you something about the world because it responds to you in a particular way. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, uh, you walking down the street, me walking down the street and a beautiful blonde woman walking down the street have three separate experiences. Correct. Right? Yes. Right? Same street. Yeah. Three separate experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the blonde and me walking down the street go, your experiences didn't happen. Right, yeah. How can that not drive you crazy? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But and so- if the blonde says, all these guys catcalling me, you know, and then you're, you're like, like that, that didn't happen, happen to me. Didn't, I don't know what you're talking <laughs> that's about. A great analogy. You're like, yeah, that's a great analogy. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I, I don't remember that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> come on, Jesse. Like, figure yeah. it out, man. Nobody's going to be cat calling you. That's really, that's a, that's a. So let me ask you that, like, we, what I think is really interesting about your body of work, right? Like, we talked about Harry the Cop, but also Whiteface is something people can watch, mm-hmm. right? And you've written a lot, like, uh, Freeman, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, Gordon Parks had his camera, right? Right. Right. You make movies, you direct. Right. It's a weapon of choice. Like, how can I get the stories out that are important? Because I think what's interesting about, like, all these projects is that you're bringing yourself to and your perspective to them. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm right now, there's a lot of people listening, I'm sure, that they've been listening to your stories in this episode and they're going, man, I know how that feels right now. Mm-hmm. is there any advice you can give to artists and writers that are listening that feel the way you felt that are maybe younger in, in the process? Right. Right. That maybe I know that you're like, I don't know how it happened, but like the not giving up piece. I know that you, like when you said like, don't, don't let them win or mm-hmm. at least right. Yeah. The of that. Is there anything that maybe even you've said to people before to kind of keep them going? 
I was blindsided by the uh, amount of resistance to somebody like me getting to do the jobs that I think I'm uh, practically born to do. Um, I didn't know there would be so much resistance to that. And it messed me up for a while. And one of the things I do, although I find when I tell it to younger people, they want to, they, they don't want to believe it. Hmm. They don't want to believe it. And, um, why and don't I'm not they want to believe it? Well, you want to believe it's chronological snobbery. You want mm-hmm. to believe that that was the olden days, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that's not now. I guarantee you people are listening right now and they're, they're like, there was riots in the early 90s? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that we just, we just passed the 100th anniversary of Oklahoma, right? Yeah. Also, um, I heard... Um, that um you know when they had the uh the curfew just recently in dc hmm. washington dc that the last time that happened was i think 1943 because a a white officer shot a black soldier and killed him oh and so there was some unrest around that this goes way way back in fact a lot of soldiers coming back from world war ii black soldiers were uh lynched or beaten um uh because people didn't like them wearing that uniform. Their stripes would be cut off or whatever. Um, they had just fought a war against Hitler, right? And won. And won they and came saved back. saved the world. And came back to To that. get lynched. Yeah. Yeah. That happened, This right? is not a new thing for America. No, what there's nothing new about 19? it. 19, is that what you said? Is what, what? You mentioned a date. You said 1619. You're like, this has been going yeah. on. Yeah. That's when black, that's when the first slaves were here in the colonies 1619 um yeah so it's a long time but young people you said they don't want to believe the story they don't want to believe they don't want to believe it they got, they think it's going to be different because it doesn't look the way you think it looks in history you know nobody's calling you names or you know what i mean or, or it doesn't look like that it, it just looks like Hey, how come all my white friends are doing better than me? You know, like, how come they keep getting stuff and I'm not getting stuff? How come I can't get that interview? How come they need more samples? How come, how come, how come? Right? After a while, it makes sense to you. But at first, you you can't figure it out. It doesn't make any sense because nobody's talking the talk. Only the worst people are talking the talk. Right? Most people are quiet about it. They just don't give you the job or they just yeah, don't. Whatever. It's just silent. Yeah. Uh, or they come up with some reason. But it's like, okay, that's cool. You can come up with a reason. And you could guess that was the reason. Uh, maybe that's true. But when that one company doesn't even fill that last slot, right? it's hard to believe that racism wasn't the only, you know, like we couldn't find any writers, none. You had your choice. Yeah. Right? Um and, and I think the scene at peace is huge because I think Mark Maron talked about that where he was like, I'm a guy who thinks, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. he says this way better. But the gist of it was, I'm a guy who thought I was pretty open-minded, right? right? Whatever. And that I embraced diversity. And then one day I looked at my writing room and I realized it was a bunch of other Jewish guys that looked just like me. Right, yeah. Right? And then he was like, oh, shit, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. And what's cool is, A, he talked about it. Right. But B, he also, once he realized that, he was like, this doesn't work. Right. But I, I, you know. Yeah. I, um, 
I once, uh, I was just talking about this to somebody. So I was in uh, LA. It was actually right when I made uh, Whiteface and it was doing pretty well and it had a screening. Um, uh, two screenings, one at the Director's Guild and then one at the Egyptian Theater. Um, and so Good, at the Director's uh, Guild, that's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. So that. that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty, it was cool. There were some agents there and none of them wanted to sign me, but that's another story. <laughs> so, 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 um, so it showed there and that was cool. And that was it. That was my brush with the Director's Guild. But, um, but I had some friends who were working on a television show. A lot of people I knew were writing on this show. And uh, so, so I go to visit them. I'm with another friend of mine and we go to the lot where they're writing and we go to visit them. And as we walk through the offices, you know, there were these offices that had glass, you know, you could see into these writing rooms. And as I walked by, I went, well, that's a bunch of young white guys. And that's a bunch of young white guys. And that's a bunch of young white guys. I didn't see any, Nobody else, nobody else, no women, nobody, no people of color. And I was like, that's weird. And then we, uh, we get to the offices where my friends are writing and they're not all young, but they are all white and they all are all male. And, um, and uh, they, were ha they had a story problem they were trying to solve. And uh, they said, I, they said, oh, the network wants us to uh, fix one of these characters. And I, I looked around the room and I said, they want you to make them black. And they were like, how did you know? I knew because they don't really want to solve the problem of hmm. diversity, right? They want to look like they're solving the problem of diversity and casting is the easiest way to do that on a show or a movie, right? Hmm. The actors, if they don't, if they're not stars, they don't have any power. They're just actors, right? They don't have any power. They don't get to say what happens on the so show. The diversity is on the front, on the, on this side of the camera. It's on the It's on the showy part. Yes. Right. The thing that you show the, the forward facing stuff. Right. And I was like, they don't want to solve the problem because they would solve the way this room look, the room looked. And the other thing I thought is they're going to create a black. That was a woman. They ended up, they're going to create a character, a black woman. And there's no one in this room to give that character an authentic voice. There's not a single person in this room to give that character an authentic. There's not one woman, not one person of color to give that person a real perspective. Um, that was, uh, yeah, but they thought I had done some kind of a magic trick because they knew when they said the studio wants us to change or the network wants us to change something. I'm like, they want you to make a character black because that looks like, that looks like diversity. But it's mm -hmm. really, it's not a real change. It's a superficial change. I remember you told me there was a studio that you were like, they're going to call me when they are writing a movie with like uh, a black character and they're going to call me so that they have insurance. I remember you saying that. Yeah. Sometimes people do that for insurance. So they can though. be like, well, Brian worked on it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the process often, like, well, we've written. So it's already done. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's already. Yeah. 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 Insurance. So it's like, do you want to solve the problem? I mean, if you want to solve the problem, more people have to be able to more diverse kinds of people need to be able to green light projects and mm -hmm. call the shots. Right. Because here's the thing. Casting, uh, that, well, I, I don't know what this thing about actors. I understand that representation matters, but if you change the power structure and you have 
women of color who can make decisions about what gets made or the men of color who can make decisions about what gets made or, or disabled people, whatever, they're going to pick a certain kind of project then. And they're going to hire certain kinds of people and the, the casting will take care of itself. Mm. Right. But it won't work the other way. It won't go backwards. It won't go from acting to, unless that person becomes a big star and can make decisions. Um, but otherwise, it's not going to change anything. You have to change the people who are making decisions because they will make different decisions and that will trickle down the rest of the pipeline. Yeah. You know? What happens to a society that doesn't, that only tells certain stories? Like, like only tells stories from, well, a white perspective. Like what happens? Like, you know what I'm saying? I, like, I, I think I, it distorts it distorts reality. It distorts the truth. Um, yeah, it distorts reality. So, and that has an impact on actual reality. Like mm -hmm. it has an impact on, you know, um, one of the things I learned when I was young was that the image of black people as criminals and, and all the movies and stuff, especially at that time, um, was exported. Our movies went around mm. the world, right? So people who didn't have black people in their country or very many would be like, I guess they're like this, right? They yeah. had no other, right? But there's neighborhoods like that in this country, right? And so their only exposure is what they see on the news and what they choose to show on the news right. or what, you know, uh, and what they see in the movies and TV. That's their exposure, right? Yeah. And um, so that's one of the reasons it's important to be truthful in your stories. It has an impact on the real world. Right. I mean, again, we've talked about it, but the clan, what was almost gone, yep. right. Birth of a nation comes out sure. and presents them as heroes. And that alters reality because the clan all of a sudden got a swell in their membership. You know, what's great. I actually pulled notes on that just in case we talked about birth of the nation and the power of the stories. Like, this is a quote from the president at the time. Okay. So this is Wilson. Okay? Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. And on top of that, number one, they screened it at the white house, which had never happened before. Right. So that's a public endorsement. And then he put out this quote after watching birth of a nation, which was, um, they pretty much like, what'd you think of it? And he said, it's like writing history with lightning. And my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. Yeah. So talk about an endorsement. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what's really interesting, too, is at the same time, um, at the same time, the leader of the KKK was watching this happen, and what they did was they took out newspaper ads for the KKK revival, and it, it ran right alongside the, the Birth of a Nation premiere, mm -hmm. right? And then what they would do is they'd also have people in the streets um, after the premiere marching. So in essence, it was a coordinated campaign. Sure. And yeah. so it went from this small, almost dead organization to millions of people, right? But it also yeah. matters. At, well, one of the things that, the reason why <laughs> people can make their own connection on this one, right? When the president endorses <laughs> a racial, right? Yeah. A racist film, it matters. When the president right. endorses anything, right. it matters. Right. And so, and if you disagree with that, look it up you know <laughs> yeah, right, but right, it's yeah. like why because stories matter right and the story of well the president's important if the president thinks that it's completely accurate and that it was a mistake for blah 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 
um, it has huge consequences. Yeah. And then on the flip side, well, what 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 helped dismantle the the KKK? We talked about it. Superman. Superman. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's in another episode. But like these things matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's cool because I bet you didn't think Harry the Cop was going to come back. And I thought it was cool that this week, all of a sudden, you start seeing it again, yeah. right? Like, like it's it's like you made it for a time mm-hmm. uh, that was a reality for a lot of people in our world all the time. And it's interesting how stories come back when we need them. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's also really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just think it's cool too that you didn't you didn't stop because man, once you add all this shit up, it's crazy, Brian. You know, yeah, it's, it's insane. I, 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 you know, I didn't talk about, I've forgotten more things <laughs> than yeah. stories I have. Like every now and then I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. Like seriously, uh, that so many of them that I've forgotten a huge number of them. They'll come back sometimes. A lot of it came back when I was writing the memoir. Um, but yeah. Um, As you look at the landscape right now, just uh, like one f- kind of like final thought on like, I mean, every day, man, like, you, you know, I, the problem is it's not unprecedented either. Right. We're living in a time where reality is starting to be seen more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing is, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> the interesting yeah. thing is that there are times when that happens and people don't see it for reality. So it's like I was saying about the Rodney King tape, right? There, there were plenty of, that was not the first videotape beating. It was not the first brutal beating I had seen on television. Um, but it had lined up with events. Yeah. Like I, I think because of COVID. Yep. And I'm sure that people are going to debate this or whatever, but I looked at the, because of COVID and everybody's cooped up yep. and they're all on their phones and they're all watching TV and everybody's already anxious and pissed off. So when this happened, it was like a powder keg, right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you, you said that a similar, there was a similar sort of event, you know, different, right, with the praise or whatever, that it becomes a thing where people acknowledge it, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, Brian, what do you do with, like, what do we even do with this thing? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But it's, but it comes up in that, you know, again and again, you know, a lot of people don't know that when there were lynchings and there were what was called spectacle lynchings, which is they, they would invite people. They'd say, we're going to have a lynching on Saturday. And people would come, thousands of people, hundreds of people would come to a lynching. And they would, you know, bring picnics and bring their kids and, you know, um, have a lynching. Or they would torture somebody for a long time. And um, uh, often, often, almost always uh, a, a black man, not in- exclusively, um, sometimes black women. There's actually a very, very brutal uh, lynching of a black woman that is almost too brutal to talk about. Um, but, um, but anyway, so they, they would have these spectacle lynchings and, and almost always uh, the man was castrated and somebody would take that as a souvenir. Um, they would sometimes cut up the body and give out pieces as souvenirs. And um, they're pictures of these lynchings because, you know, people took pictures and they were postcards that went all over the country. And so when people talk about the 60s and they say, well, it was the first time people saw that stuff. I'm like, that's not true. Those postcards went all over the country. That's not true. 
I think that the reason that people cared about it at that moment, there are a couple of reasons, but one of them was we were fighting the Cold War. And we were saying that they were the evil empire and that we were a beacon of freedom. And it was just bad PR right? <laughs> to have that stuff out there. It's like, oh, they're sicking dogs on kids. What, what, you know, it, we didn't have a leg to stand on. Um, and so I think that's, um, that had something to do with the change um, then. But, I, but people knew what was going on. It was not a secret. You know, people who had relatives in the South who traveled down South, they saw the signs. You can't go here. You can't go there. Whites only. Like, they knew what was going on. That wasn't a surprise, right? You know? But but they didn't have to deal with it. They didn't have to deal with it. You know? Um, I I have a friend whose parents came here after World War II from uh, Denmark. And uh, they had no idea how the United States operated. So they were on, on a bus... I think in the fifties going from uh, um, going down to Florida from Connecticut or whatever. And they were going down to Florida, wherever they lived. And, and uh, they say, well, she said it was pouring. His mom told me the story. It was pouring down rain. And she said, the bus stopped and a black man got on and he had to, he had to walk all the way. He had all this stuff. He had to walk all the way to the back of the bus to sit, but there was no space to sit in the back. There were seats up front, but there were none up in the back. And he had to break, take all the stuff and go back and get off and stand in the rain again, wait for the next bus. And she said to her husband, let's leave. <laughs> let's leave the United States. <laughs> She's like, these people are crazy. Um, which is often the case when people aren't indoctrinated. They see it. They see it. Man, that's the right word, too. Yeah. What am I? What are, what are, what are as Americans, what have we been indoctrinated to? Yeah. What do we choose not to see? You right. Know yeah. Because um, now is hopefully a time where we'll be able to see more clearly. I hope so. And and hopefully it will last more than a news cycle. I hope so too. I hope so. Because it hasn't in the past. Right. Way to end on a hopeful note. <laughs> here's, here's the hopeful note. Here's the okay. hopeful note. The armature of this series is you're a storyteller. Why is that right. important? Because you can use what you have to make a difference. Yeah. Right. Gordon Parks had a 35 millimeter camera instead yeah. of a 45, right? Yeah. Like, like you had, I don't know. I don't even know. Would you have a, t- what'd you write Harry on? Uh, uh, I guess I wrote it. Uh, it's probably one of those early Macs, like there you a go. little teeny, you had, yeah. about the tiny Mac, right? Yeah. It wasn't even Whatever mine. You, I had to go to a friend's house to do it. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. had a friend's computer. Yeah. Whatever you have in front of you, it could be a pencil and paper. It could be, you could be great at drawing, writing, singing, whatever. Know that you talked about last week, the job of a storyteller is a healer and we need healers now more than ever. Mm -hmm. And whatever you have access to, you should do something because here's the thing. I was talking to another person today about this and they were talking about how we got to do something. We got to do something. And I was like, well, you're a writer, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you wait until – it's funny how people usually don't see the thing that's right in front of them, mm-hmm. right? It'll be yeah. like – it's like I got to do something. I'm going to go take a pottery, and I'm going to – it's like, hold on a second, hold on a second. You're a writer, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. we usually go, if I just had this thing, yeah. well, what do you have? Tell better stories. Whoever tells the best story wins. Yep. And what's happening right now is a lot of people are telling stories and putting things out that people hadn't seen before or hadn't chose, chosen to see or hadn't seen, Yeah. right? And it is making a difference. And so as storytellers, 
we could sure use some more healers right now. It's definitely true. Because we need it. We needed it for a long time. That's definitely true. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brian. Oh, man. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Thanks for watching You Are a Storyteller. If you have any questions, or if there's a storytelling topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.